Welcome to the Equine Energy Medicine Podcast with your host, Audrey McLaughlin. Hey friends, welcome to the newest episode of the Equine Energy Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, equine naturopath and energy medicine practitioner, Audrey. So one of the questions that I get asked about a lot is some form of, why aren't there any studies showing that, you know, a forage diet works? Why aren't there any studies showing that soy is bad for horses? Why aren't there any studies showing that grain is bad for horses? So we're going to address that today, mostly because it's, it, it really is too long of a answer to address in any other method than a total podcast. Um, so we're going to talk about that some today. So there, to start off with, we have to look at one major factor in doing a good study. So when there is a study to be done, it costs a lot of money. What feels like eons ago in my early 20s when I was a registered nurse, um, I worked for an academic center. Um, I did orthopedics, but then uh, I did a brief stint um, when I got tired of being on call all the time in dermatology. Uh, and in dermatology, we had a rigorous research department. So full on, we're calling people in with XYZ skin cancer, we're bringing them in, we're doing studies on them, or we're signing them up for research purposes. The amount of dollars that it takes to study something topical, like the skin, ver- it, it's astronomical. And this was over 20 years, yeah, over 20 years ago, or 20, 19 to 20 years ago. Studies cost a ton of money. So in order to have a study worth doing, you have to have a sponsor. Typically, those sponsors are someone who stands to gain something from that research study. Now, typically, speaking as someone who up until three weeks ago was a hay producing, you know, sole hay, um, didn't sell a lot of hay, mostly kept it for myself, but sold hay. Um, there's not enough money in, in hay production to fund a study on why hay is better for your horse than corn distillers grain and concentrated feed versus uh, a company, a big company, pick any major feed manufacturer who has millions, if not more, interest in ensuring that you buy that product right? So they are pushing out studies. I had one person tell me, you know, XYZ company puts out more studies than you ever uh, could with the information that you pull out of your rear. And it was a little more uh, direct and uh, foul than that. Um, but it's true. They, they have more money in studies than anyone because they have more money to lose than anyone, right? There is no one to fund studies on natural methods, whether it be nutrition or herbs or what whatnot, other than the government, other than a few private um, foundations. Sometimes you might find a university who will give somebody a, a large enough grant um, or someone who can put something together. Uh, when we take that a step further, right, and, and not really a step further because I have been talking about equine studies, but when we take that a little bit further into equine studies, most of the time the things that are studied are things that have value, a lot of value tied to them, surgical procedures, drugs, uh, concentrated manufactured feed, because there's a lot of money behind them. The other thing uh, with studies, when we look at equine studies specifically, is that 
because studies are expensive, they uh, and there are so many regulatory hoops to jump through. Granted, there are further or fewer regulatory jumps to go through for a, an animal-based study of any kind than there are for humans. Um, when we're looking at equine studies, usually it is a relatively small cohort. So somebody will get a published, uh, excuse me, a, a study published, and it will have it will have six horses in it. We looked at six horses, right? Six horses is not enough to make a decision about nearly anything. Even when I'm looking at just my practice, I don't even start saying it works until I have duplicated that response on double digits, at least, if not 20, 30, 40, 60, 100 horses over a lot of years before I say, okay, this is a case study. I know this works. Typically when that happens, and and if you've been a one-on-one client with me before, you may have heard me say, I like to use this X product for Y problem. I got to be honest, I don't know why it works, but I've had some luck with it. So I think we should try it because there's not really anything else that is for this. I might be able to connect the dots. It's in my Friday research pile, right? I don't know if you guys know this, but I have like a Friday research pile. It's one part stack of (laughs) books and papers on my desk. One part scratches in this really bright Hunter orange notebook and one part notes on my computer, like in the Apple document notes. Um, and every Friday I go through and I, you know, that's a, a new study that came out that I need to read it or whatnot. When we are looking at things specifically for equine, we have to have number one funding to do studies. We have to have a large enough cohort, meaning a large enough sample of horses to do studies. Um, I think I said money already. So we have to have all sorts of things and to truly prove it, right? You can put together a really crappy cohort of six horses and it not be, you know, truly a scientific study, but the scientific method actually requires double blind controlled studies, right? Double blind controlled studies, which are really, really expensive. Now that's not to say that there's not scientific evidence for recommendations that are made or things that we do. Everything that I do in my practice is evidence-based, even the energy medicine. And we could, I could probably really, um, <laughs> I don't want to say confuse, but really like make you go, whoa, by connecting the energy medicine with science. Um, but everything that we do in practice, everything that I teach practitioners to do in practice is evidence-based, meaning we either have studies to do it, to prove it. I have personal practice for, like I said, 20, 30, 40, 100 cases where it works. Or, you know, kind of the last option is we look at something and we say, okay, well, actually, there's two more options. Uh, We'll call the third option the human option, meaning this is the way this happens in humans. So we'll take soy, for example, soy being inflammatory in humans. Soy in and of itself is not inflammatory. Soy in the way it is grown and harvested and processed makes it toxic for humans as well, but also for horses. And so when we're looking at things like, you know, is it toxic? We can look at the manufacturing process of how it gets from planted in the field to whatever it is in your feed product. So a meal, an oil, shelled holes, or or whatever it might be. We can look at the growing process. So what does it take to make that soybean grow in a profitable way? Here's a hint, glyphosate, which is toxic, cancer-causing, inflammatory-causing, all of those things. Soy is one of the highest-sprayed crops for that. We can look at a small cohort study here or there in the human world or the equine world and say, okay, 
we can link these high omega-6 fatty acids, these PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids, when we're looking at something like soybean oil, um, and we can say it causes these problems in humans, which one of these physiologically match up to horses and which ones don't, right? Um, we can we can look at all sorts of things. So just because it doesn't have something in the PubMed database saying soy is inflammatory for horses and here's all the ways that we've proven that, we can take what we know about anatomy and physiology and biochemistry and pathophysiology and apply that to the same things that we know about, uh, and, and I mean all of those anatomy and physiology and things about horses, and apply those things to how we know certain chemicals, um, reactions, things are digested in the body, all of those things without having an official, you know, published study. Now, if we look at something like corn distillers grains, and there are bodies of research, you know, a lot of times I'll get a question on a social media channel or emailed to me, like, send me a study on how you can say this. Probably not going to send that because you can, you can research just like I can. And I also am not going to take a you know, an hour of my time to type up an entire dissertation explaining to you the science of how, you know, uh, corn soluble uh, corn grain distillers, corn or corn solubles or whatever it might be, um, how that is digested in a typical horse versus a senior horse versus a performance horse versus a metabolic horse and explain all of those variances you know, and then explain to you how, you know, the starch is processed through the body and then how much of that is absorbed in the foregut and how much of that creates ulceration or at, at worst, you know, ulceration at best acidity uh, in the hindgut and all of those things. We're not going to go through that whole thing. Um, if, you know, what I'm hoping to do, especially on social media, is just give you a jumping off point to spark something in your mind that says, hey, shoot, corn distillers grains are inflammatory. And if you really want to dig into the research, you can find equine studies that show that horses should never, ever, ever have more. One study says 15%, one study says 10%. I think I saw a study once that said 20% of corn distillers grains in their diet. How many people are feeding concentrated feed, period? Like your horses in a paddock may or may not get one or two flakes of hay a day, and they get five pounds twice a day of something with an inflammatory ingredient like corn distillers grain or multiple inflammatory ingredients in it. Well, if you read those studies, the reason why you can't have more than that is because it causes inflammation. So when we're talking about getting rid of all of that stuff, when we're talking about making our horses sound sane, keeping them active and and performing and competing for as long as possible, then we don't want to do things that add insult to injury because there are some inflammatory agents that are um, a body burden from your for your horse that we can't control. So we're going to take out all the things that we can control. For example, I have moved um, from North Texas to South Texas. Love it here. It's great. However, I can't find hay that I like. And admittedly, I am supremely picky. And I'm not growing it myself, obviously. <laughs> um, but I can't find hay that I like. And so I that is a fact, a factor typically that I can control. So I'm going through other ways and my, my horse's diets are incredibly clean. And I'm like, okay, I don't typically buy organic alfalfa because I didn't feel like I needed to. But now that I can't get the quality of hay that I want, well, now I'm going to remove some toxins in the area of alfalfa. And I'm going to start buying organic alfalfa, even though to, to make up for that burden of the hay on my horses. Does that make sense? So that is just something that I want you to think about and be aware of that 
you know, all of that to say is that there's not always, always going to be a study for it. There are thousands of combinations of anti-inflammatory diets, of forage-based diets, of ingredients that are inflammatory and non-inflammatory and putting them together makes more inflammation or less inflammation. And so there's, it's just not feasible to have studies on every single one of these things. Not to mention it would disrupt a market that has figured out how to take waste products, waste products from other feed manufacturing processes, from other human food manufacturing processes, and turn it into a profitable business, right? So that's what has happened with the feed industry. They have taken the waste products from all of these different things and made it into a profitable feed in the form of a pellet without regard to the long-term efficacy of how that impacts the horse. And some people don't care, right? So we're just now turning the the cusp. Uh, and, And not everyone. I have lovely clients who have been beating the drum of, you know, horses as sentient beings for a long, long time. But there's still, I'd say probably the vast majority of, of the horse industry still very much treats horses as um, sports equipment or as profit only or as not even like sports equipment, but like a tool to use and not something that, you know, where it's not a big deal to them. And they're like, okay, I got my four or five years out of this horse and now I'm going to breed or now I'm going to sell it or whatever the ne- you know the thing may be. So I've gotten on a little bit of a soapbox here, but I do want to talk about one more aspect of this whole, you know, s- few rigorous studies on this kind of natural diet for horses. One other thing that tends to preclude a lot of these studies being done and even precludes me from taking a lot of the work that I've done over the years and, you know, getting it published is because in order to do studies, you have to have some definition of a standardized product. And as you may know, if you've ever tested your hay, if you've tested your hay year over year or any of those things, despite there being a guaranteed analysis on the alfalfa bag, that is the average, right? And they only test that at most facilities inside of once a year, sometimes once every three years. Sometimes they only do it when the product is manufactured initially and then never do it again. They never check up on that. So there's a huge variance in terms of prob- of product. And so it can be difficult to create a standardized study, a standardized test, because you would have to grow a, a standard forage or even a standard corn distiller's grain or whatever it may be, um, and do so and use that in all of the parts of the study. And it's very difficult to do with live plants, right? With living things. Um, there have been, there's been a little bit of this done in some uh, studies on like marijuana research purposes and that sort of thing. Um, and there are some extracts from products like that that can be standardized. But for the most part, even in the human world, it's very difficult to just go out and do a study without the required infrastructure that meets all of these legal and scientific standards, um, not to mention equipment and all of those things. So it's kind of part two, like part one is cost. Part two is definitely, you know, quality and standardization of a product um, in order to have a viable research study. So hopefully, hopefully that clears some things up. Hopefully, as I said, it gives you a jumping off point. You can definitely look at madbarn.com forward slash research. They have a lot of good equine studies. Um, And then figuring out the keywords to look for in order to find the studies that you want to support uh, your, your thought process, your thesis, 
whatever it may be, your hypothesis is a good way to say it, then you can definitely do that. One last thing I'll say about studies before I close. (laughs) I keep saying one last thing, but one last thing for real that I'll say before I close is that um, you can find a study to support just about anything that you want, right? And so that's where you have to have a real level of discernment, not only who did the study, how well was it done? Um, And I have to be honest, I didn't learn throughout my entire medical career, both human and equine, I didn't learn about how to, you know, to read a good study until I was almost done with my master's degree. And then I got like a second uh, course on statistics and statistical information and all of that and how to develop a good study and how to find a good study for research purposes until I was well into my doctorate program. Um, So just know that, um, you know, a study isn't always what it seems. And you just really have to understand the best thing to do. Number one is to find somebody to help you. Um, Whether it's me or somebody else, find somebody to help you put it together, find somebody whose opinion you respect, and whose program you like, or what you know of it you like, and have an appointment with them, have a consultation with them and develop a plan for your horse. Okay. Number two, learn how to do it yourself. I have a quick and dirty guide. It's like eight bucks. You can find the link uh, in the show notes. Uh, It tells you exactly what to feed and exactly what to avoid. Really, really useful, really helpful, especially if you're just starting out, you're trying to clean up your horse's diet. Um, Another thing you can do is learn about it yourself. So again, whether you do it for me or another practitioner that you respect or admire, you can take my nutrition for horse owners class or uh, that's available all the time. Uh, linked in the profile. And then I also have a practitioner's course for equine professionals. That registration actually closes on December 15th, also linked in the show notes. So there are ways, right? And if you don't agree with what I am saying or what I am doing, holy, find somebody who does, because I can tell you the one thing that you will not regret is figuring it out, doing the work and making your horse the healthiest, soundest, sanest, most athletic, long living, long performing, long working, even if it's just your, your, you know, your long camaraderie horse that anyone in your barn discipline, friend of a circle of friends, town, whatever has ever seen. I promise. So hopefully (laughs) that leaves you well. I really am closing now. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Equine Energy Medicine Podcast. Ratings and reviews are always appreciated. We'll catch you in the next episode.